In this episode of Real Christianity, I'm going to be resolving the question, what is a woman's role in theological education? This episode is going to be acting as part three on my discussion, should women teach theology to other women? All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. Real Christianity is an audio and video ministry of relearn.org. Thank you for joining. I am going to be offering really a part three to the discussion that has become a national, maybe even an international discussion around should women teach other women theology. This, we had two weeks ago, we had part one, uh, which started the discussion. Part two offered further clarity, and I offered maybe 10 question and answers of commonly uh, frequently asked questions around the issue. Today, I wanted to offer ultra clarity, giving more information to help anybody that might be misunderstanding what I'm saying. And hopefully it's a helpful resource for you to understand a woman's role in theological education. Now you can read this exact episode it's available at relearn.org as an article. I'm going to be reading it, but I'm also going to be offering my commentary. So let's go ahead and dive in. Give you guys a little bit of context. Uh, the two-part series, if you haven't listened to that, Should Women Teach Other Women Theology? The natural course of development when I was producing these episodes, I would say there's more clarity in episode number two instead of episode number one. So I would say if you want to go back, you can listen to episode number two first and then move on to episode one and then read this article or listen to this episode. I think that would be the best approach. This episode, I think, will bring maximum clarity. Now, hey, if you're already listening to this episode, just go ahead and finish it. That's fine as well. Now, as you might know, this topic has caused a significant discussion around the globe. I mean, I've had the most of it's happened here in the American church, but I'll tell you what, I have seen screenshots and text messages and social media tags from people all over discussing this concept of what is a woman's role in theological education. And so uh, several influential women made comments during this discussion over the last several weeks. Some of them were helpful, some of them were respectful, others were slanderous and sinful, and I'm not gonna name names, on those individuals. As expected, my message was encountered with resistance from especially those women who had platforms that were built upon themselves teaching theology to other women. Essentially, by agreeing with me would be an admission of guilt or at least a reformation required of their current ministry. And so I expected to have that kind of resistance from these women that had platforms built on teaching other women theology. I linked a handful of these individuals, Haley Williams from Kindled Podcast, uh, Felicia Masonheimer. Her platform is Every Woman a Theologian. In essence, um, there's been a big discussion among the ladies. And uh, Ali Stuckey offered her feedback. And I think that she, uh, I respect Ali, but I think she misrepresented my claims. I also don't think in that episode she used enough scripture to back up her position. I think that she made biblical patriarchy look to be uh, not what the doctrine actually is, which we'll talk about today. Um, and I think that she didn't really 
approach the substance of the discussion with care. Maybe she listened to the whole thing. Maybe she didn't listen to both episodes. I'm not sure. But I think that she did have a mischaracterization of my argument. Uh, A few pastors engaged with the content uh, that I had some good conversations, lots of, uh, I think, fruitful, even critical and fruitful discussions. Uh, Pastor Anthony Wood, uh, I think, absolutely misrepresented my claims when he did a a sermon and had a 10-minute section on his sermon a couple Sundays ago. You can, again, find the link to that. It's available in the article. But I believe that he distorted the argument and also refuted positions that I never even took. And so this is pretty common in theological discourse. You're going to have people that strawman your argument or they're going to misrepresent it. And we often fail to put in the time that it takes to really have a careful reading and to uh, represent the other argument well. And so I understand that we're sinful and you know, I've done the same thing too. And it's one of those things that we need to be careful about. So there's just going to be passionate discussions around a topic like this. Uh, despite the resistance, I have received hundreds, if not thousands of messages and social media comments and emails from men and women that have been thanking me for the clarity because I believe they're seeing what's going on with the church being so highly influenced by the feminist movement and they're not even realizing it. And I think the initiation of the broader conversation is important. You know, a lot of people say, man, why are we having these conversations? They seem so heated. They seem so unfruitful. Uh, Twitter was just having a conversation around Christian nationalism. Is really need to be talking about this. You know, Joel Webin was talking about things between G3 and there became kind of taking sides. I actually think it's an important topic to discuss. We should be having these passionate debates around theological and doctrinal matters because they need to be clarified uh, at, at large, especially among pastors. And so these types of debates are important. There's a big discussion going on around what the women is motherhood and marriage, uh, a woman's highest calling. Um, so there's there's lots of those things. They're, they're important. Now we need to do them well. We need to have those discussions with love and care, uh, but they are important discussions. I know they can make some people feel uncomfortable because of the passion behind them, but they must happen. Now, as for this article, I want to remind you that my effort is to express the biblical ideal, the biblical ideal. And I understand that we live in a fallen world with fallen families, unqualified pastors, uh, unbelieving fathers, spiritually immature husbands, passive men. Okay, we this is the world that we live in. And this often leaves women with less than ideal circumstances when it comes to having a shepherd, a spiritual shepherd, a theological advisor uh, in their life. Now, having said that, I believe that the biblical ideal for theological instruction is to come from men, from fathers, from husbands, from pastors. And we as Christians and churches should be working toward the biblical ideal. We shouldn't accept the status quo. We should be working toward the ideal. We need to know what the ideal is. Uh, Furthermore, my argument in this article and this podcast uh, and the both previous uh, episodes, it's a systematic argument because there's no passage of scripture that says women shall not teach other women theology. Now, on the flip side, there's also no other passage that says women shall teach other women theology. Uh, So what we need to do is I'm going to draw from biblical, theological, historical evidence to build and demonstrate uh, a systematic argument of why I believe 
that women are not to be regarded as the proper or the ideal uh, or preferred source of theological instruction to their female counterparts. And so please stay with me here. Now, what I am not saying, and I said this, I think, in all three episodes, but what I am not saying, just to be ultra clear, and uh, I, I just don't want to get people uh, firing off statements of, oh, Dale, you're saying that women can't have discussions about theology? No, I'm not saying that. So here's a couple points. I'm not saying that women cannot learn theology. Women should learn theology, okay? I'm not saying that women cannot learn theology. I'm not saying that women cannot read their Bibles. Okay, this is, I've heard some people say these dumb statements out on the internet that I'm claiming that. That is clearly not what I'm claiming. I'm not saying that women cannot have other theological conversations with other women. Okay, remember, a theological conversation at a mommy play date around Calvinism is significantly different than a woman enrolling into a six-week workshop theology course to learn soteriology from another woman. Very, very different uh, categories, which we'll talk about in a bit. I'm also not saying that women cannot learn biblical womanhood and wifehood and marriage and homemaking from other women. They absolutely must do those things. So I'm presenting the question, should women teach other women theology? Or the inverse, should women learn theology from other women. So again, please note that my question began with should and not can. I'm not saying can a woman learn theology from other women? Certainly. You certainly can. Uh, but like what I mean by that is women are capable. Women are absolutely capable of, of teaching that theology. Uh, but I'm asking whether a woman should learn theology from another woman. That is, does the Bible thematically and theologically push for women to teach other women's theology? Is that what we see thematically in scripture? Uh, is that the biblical ideal that women are teaching other women theology? Is that the ideal? Uh, or does the Bible thematically and theologically push for men to teach other men, women, and children theology? Is that what we see in scripture? So we're talking again about the ideal. So I understand terms like theology uh, must be defined since theology, in a sense, bleeds into every area of the Christian life. Uh, for that reason, I clearly define how I'm using uh, the word theology in subsequent paragraphs. So just stay tuned as we get to that. Now, this entire argument, I think this is probably maybe the most helpful section because a lot of people that listen to these first two episodes don't understand that I hold to a doctrine of biblical patriarchy. Now, biblical patriarchy is a different position than complementarianism. And I'm going to talk about that just for a second. So my stance on this matter is founded on my unwavering belief in the doctrine of biblical patriarchy. Now, I've observed that many Christians lack a theological comprehension of this doctrine. And as a result, they default to the complementarian position because that's just the air we breathe in American Christianity. Everybody is complementarian. It sounds like a really good word. Oh yeah, we complement one another. That's That's gotta be right, right? That's definitely the way. And also, you know, the great teachers of the last, you know, 50 years, Piper and Grudem and MacArthur, and, you know, these people are in the complementarian camp. 
Now, like many others of my generation, I have come to recognize the significant flaws within the complementarian view. And a term that now, so when we think about this term, complementarian, it's a new term. It came in 1988 at the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, Piper and Grudem are really backed up this whole movement. Uh, it's, they wrote the Danvers Statement uh, on, uh, on essentially this view of complementarianism. And so this is a new word. It's not something that's, you, you, you would say complementarianism to, a, to an 1800s Christian, and they're not going to have any idea what you're talking about. And so what I will say is that the complementarian view, I believe, has uh, contributed to a lot of the church's detrimental effects uh, concerning sexuality in the church, roles, marriage, family dynamics, leadership and submission, headship, gender distinction. I I think that there's actually a a true connection between the complementarian view and these issues today. Now, again, this podcast isn't intended to produce an exhaustive definition of the doctrine of biblical patriarchy, but it's vital to provide you guys a summary of what is biblical patriarchy um, because essentially my view on women teaching other women theology is intertwined with the tenets of that doctrine. So biblical patriarchy simply means father rule. Uh, It it emphasizes the God-ordained authority of men as heads of household and leaders in the church, in the home, and in society. Okay, so this is one of the major distinctions. Uh, The conviction is rooted in the clear, again, thematic example of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So namely that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they are male. Uh, The prophets are male. The priests are male. The kings are male. In the New Testament, we see um, the apostles are male. The scribes are male. The elders in the church are male. Uh, And unlike complementarianism, which limits the, the rule of men to the house and to the church, biblical patriarchy holds to the idea that leadership stays the same in all spheres of life, including civil life. So there would be no female uh, leaders or government leaders or uh, in business management. So I'll talk about that in a second. So I think complementarianism reveals its central flaw in that specific discussion. Um, It's inconsistent. And what I mean by that, it, it allows women to rule over men in certain contexts, such as politics or law enforcement or business management, uh, essentially in the professional or political field. However, if a woman cannot rule over her church or her household, uh, how can she rule over a city or state or country of churches and households? Uh, That seems like an inconsistency to me. Uh, Isaiah 3.12, God acknowledges the tragedy of disorder in Israel's nation state. Uh, He says, quote, my people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths, end quote. Now, because of the failure of men in Israel, the influence of the young people and the women had become Israel's source of leadership. And unfortunately, with the influence of pop culture and feminism today, uh, it's not 
much different here in America or the West. So I believe complementarianism's inconsistency is seen in its view of ontology. Now, the word ontology just means the study of being. And according to scripture, male and female roles are rooted in creation. They're rooted in creation. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, 1 Timothy 2, uh, 11 through 15, Genesis uh, 1 through 3, you can go back and look at those. The question that complementarians must face is why men's and women's roles should change when in the political or professional sphere. Like, why would we change if we're not, if we're rooted in, if our differences are rooted in creation and our actual being? Um, are men all of a sudden designed in a professional setting to submit to women in that context? Uh, are women all of a sudden designed to be leaders instead of helpers and keepers at the home uh, in another context? Are, are women designed to not be subordinate in some contexts, but then be subordinate to men in other contexts? So again, I think there's a clear inconsistency that's there that causes a lot of problems in civil life and in professional life. Uh, so instead, biblical patriarchy affirms that God has uniquely and beautifully designed men and women differently, not just in roles, but in actual being, in our very being. That is that men are to be leaders because they are made to be leaders. And that doesn't change regardless of the circumstances. And women are to be helpers uh, because they're made to be helpers. That's what they're made to do. Uh, and this isn't something that we should ever think is a bad thing, right? Because this isn't that men should ever feel guilty that they're made to rule and lead because God designed men this way before the fall. This is exactly what he gave to Adam before sin entered into the world. This is a good thing. And so we don't need to feel bad about being the leaders because this is an all holy and all wise God has designed men to be the leaders and shepherds uh, in these various contexts. Now, a woman on the flip side doesn't need to feel oppressed because, or, or that she's anything less because again, this is a station that God has given her. She's designed for this station. In fact, she will be most uh, fruitful when she is in accordance with her design and same with men. And so, you know, because complementarians believe our differences are rooted in roles, and not in being. Uh, they think that women can interchange roles based on certain different circumstances. And so, on the other hand, again, biblical patriarchy recognizes that men are to be pastors and preachers and shepherds and leaders and kings because God designed men to be these very things. We talked about in episode two that the difference between men and women, that there's actually men's chess and women's chess and the sheer reality that men actually think differently. We're made differently. Um, you know, men are made to preach. We don't, it's not just like, oh, a woman can preach or a woman can be uh, a, a theologian or a theological shepherd or whatever. It's that men are actually designed for these things. Now, women, by virtue of their distinct design, do not share the same duties as men because it's not part of their being. Um, women are made to nurture and they're made to care, to be compassionate and they have a more agreeable nature and they're more driven by emotion to help be a counselor to the man that they help. And, 
And men can't do those things as well because it's not part of their being. And so because biblical patriarchy is based on being and not on roles, uh, it universally lays the responsibility for women and children on the shoulders of men. And so this is getting into more of the responsibility and has a connection with what we're talking about today. That is that a father is responsible for his family in a way that his wife is not. Uh, Ephesians 5, 26 through 27, Colossians 3, 18, 1 Timothy 5, 8, Ephesians 6, 4, Colossians 3, 21, 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6. So he is the answerable party to God for his family's spiritual health and moral actions. And we see this as far back as the Garden of Eden. So let's just look at that for a second. So Adam was not guilty of Eve's sin, but he was responsible for it. He was responsible for it. After their disobedience, God did not call Eve. He only called Adam. That's Genesis chapter three, verses six through nine. When they were banished from the garden, God didn't banish Eve. No, God just banished Adam because Eve's banishment was included in Adam's banishment. You can see that also in uh, Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Uh, in a similar way, Christ was not guilty of the church's sin, 1 Peter uh, 2, 22, Hebrews 4, 15, but he took responsibility for the church's sin. And this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24, 3, uh, 18, Galatians 3, 13. And he took responsibility and it paying for it on the cross. And so this model of male rule and responsibility and love is the Bible's explicit instruction for other men to follow, other pastors, other fathers, other husbands uh, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Ultimately, biblical patriarchy upholds order in the home, in the church, and in the social, political, civil sphere. And more than that, it does so in a manner that represents the supreme patriarch, Jesus Christ. And so it's not in this you know, misogynistic, uh, overpowering, you know, oppressing view. No, biblical patriarchy is different than sinful patriarchy. No, this is loving, caring, godly leadership, taking responsibility uh, for those who have been entrusted to you. It rules from, again, from love and wisdom and compassion, and it tries to glorify God in everything. And so this is, again, it's a different view. This is a view that's held by uh, Douglas Wilson. He wrote a book called Federal Husband that might be interested for some of you if you're looking into this. Joel Webin just recently put out an episode talking about a father's authority over their home. You can listen to that episode if you wanted to find it on his podcast or his YouTube channel. And so it's from this position of the doctrine of biblical patriarchy that uh, I'm grounded in this profound sense of being uh, responsible for uh, the moral state of my wife and children. And so I really believe that, yeah, I'm not guilty of my wife and children's sins, but I'm responsible for them. Uh, God is, I'm the answerable party for how my wife believes and how my wife acts and how my children believe and how my children act. I believe that is the clear teaching of scripture. It's the clear example of Jesus Christ and his marriage with the church. And so my conviction regarding women teaching theology to other women emerges from that uh, position. Now, the heart of the problem. So the heart of the problem 
is that we're witnessing a trend where more and more women are taking on the task of providing theological shepherding exclusively for other women. And they're doing this in a variety of ways, from theology conferences for women and biblical workshops for women to female-focused podcasts uh, and video courses that are dealing with systematics and soteriology and ecclesiology and eschatology and other vital doctrines. So this is a real thing. I actually linked a bunch of examples in the article if you wanted to look at that. Now, what makes it even more alarming is the increase in women who actually prefer to receive theological instruction from other women and not from men. Okay, this, this is really my big concern. You have more and more women are taking up this role of theological shepherding of other women, probably because they see a need and they're trying to fulfill it or trying to fill it. And then you actually have another movement of women who are actually preferring to learn theology from other women and not from men. That is a big, giant red flag because you never see this in church history. We're going to talk about that more, but I just want you to see that's the problem, the heart of the problem. And so the shift is, tells you a couple things. Number one, it informs that informs us that Christian women are assuming the biblically and historically male role and responsibility of theologically shepherding other women. This is what pastors did. The idea of the woman pastor or the women's pastor, this is an unbiblical concept, okay? Historically, the pastor is the pastor of the men and the women and the children. The father is the pastor of his wife and his children. The father, uh, the husband is the pastor of his wife and his children. I mean, th- this is what we see historically, what we see biblically. Number two, it expresses that more women are rejecting the biblical and historical channels for theological guidance from their God-given shepherds. And so I know that they're not necessarily just rejecting it. They're also maybe not even receiving it, uh, which is my third point. And remember, your God-given shepherd as as a woman is either your father, your husband, or your pastor. Now, number three, it demonstrates that men are failing to provide sufficient theological education for their wives and daughters. Thus, they are turning to other women. They're turning out of necessity to other women because the men are failing. I'm saying that's not ideal. That's not ideal. That's not what we see in scripture. So we as Christians and churches should work toward the ideal. We need to get these men and fathers, and pastors back in the shepherding role where women are turning back to their God-given shepherds. Okay, all that said, a man's concern for a woman theologically shepherding his wife, daughter, parishioner, it's not without merit. It's not, the concern's not without merit. 1 Timothy 2.14 speaks to this issue within the church. Paul says, quote, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the text teaches us a couple things. Number one, a woman is to learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Number two, a woman is not permitted to teach to the church. Number three, a woman is not to exercise authority over a man. 
So Paul anchors his reasoning for these commands in both creation order and what he's doing there is he's appealing to the male to female flow of leadership um, and to the events of the fall where he's appealing to the woman's susceptibility to deception. So you need to pay attention, read that passage of scripture if you want to go back and look at it it's again. It's 1 Timothy 2.14. Now the late uh, theologian Henry Morris said of this verse, I thought this was really good. Quote, the many daughters of Eve share the trusting nature of their first mother. And so in general, at least, are more easily deceived by those evil spirits who can masquerade as angels of light. Second Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. Although there may be exceptions when for want of masculine leadership, a Christian woman may be forced to assume the spiritual leadership in the home. For example, Timothy's own mother and grandmother or even in the family of God, Deborah, Judges 4, uh, 4 and 8, this is not the divinely ordained way. There is no New Testament example of a woman serving as an elder or bishop or pastor of a local church, with the possible exception of the false prophetess Jezebel in the church of Thyatira, Revelation 2.20, who was evidently herself also deceived by Satan, end quote. Now, in his commentary on this verse, Matthew Henry also adds, quote, this verse emphasizes the vulnerability of women to deception and a basis, and as a basis for the teaching that women should not have teaching authority in the church, end quote. Okay, so since the inception of the church, an ecumenical consensus has been reached regarding the interpretation of women's authority in teaching the Bible. We all are landing on the same page in terms of the Reformed community. Now, this consensus maintains that women are not to exercise teaching authority in the church. Uh, and that is specifically extending out to communicant members uh, of both men and all communicant members, uh, even women in the church. Now, it's important to clarify that this position is not based on the inability of a woman. Okay, we know we've all seen Beth Moore and we've all seen Priscilla Schreier. You know, it's not an inability. Okay, but rather, again, it's their inherent nature or being, their greater susceptible susceptibility to deception, and we're basing it on the teachings of scripture. And so, again, we're, we're not talking about that they're incapable. We're talking about that they're actually not designed for that. You know, I think Doug Wilson talks about, well, you can use a screwdriver as a chopstick. Um, you can do it. It's not designed for that. Uh, but you can eat spaghetti with it. I mean, you can try that, but that's not what it's for. And I think that's what's happening in the church is that a lot of women are doing male roles. They can do that, but they're not actually designed for that. I mean, I think we see this in the military, combat positions. Men are designed for battle. We're more aggressive. We're more accurate under pressure. There's statistics after statistics that prove this to be true. And yet we, we still try to think that we're the same instead of being different in being. Now, church history uh, provides several examples to support what I'm talking about here when examining the more recent history of women who have self-identified themselves as, quote, theologians and engaged in the theological shepherding of other women. Uh, it becomes apparent that a significant majority of them have actually succumbed to what? To heresies, and emotionalism, and unorthodox practices. 
show me a church with a rainbow flag and a Black Lives Matter sign waving out front, and I'll show you a woman pastor inside. I mean, that is generally what's happening. Not every case, but generally that's what we expect. Even here, I'm looking for a church building for our church, and I find these beautiful buildings. I see a rainbow flag out front. I go to the website, and boom, there it is, woman pastor. And so, again, I linked all types of examples here, even from people like Beth Moore and Priscilla Schreier. And so they're here in the article if you want to go read them. So Christian men, again, have a legitimate concern for refusing to place their wives and daughters for whom they are responsible for under the theological shepherd of other women. Now, as I mentioned in both podcasts, much of this shift has been built on the modern psychotherapy fallacy that a person cannot speak into what they have not experienced. Uh, In other words, experience becomes the authority instead of scripture. And if experience is the authority, I as a man can't speak into women's issues because of course I am not a woman. I don't have woman experiences. Uh, And as a result, I become disqualified to teach on women's issues because I'm a mansplainer or whatever it may be. And therefore churches say, well, we should hire a woman to come in and teach theology to the women because you know, they're going to, they're going to do a better job than I will. Even though I'm responsible for the souls and care of these individuals, I actually am going to outsource that to another woman. This is not something you would ever see in church history. So male pastors, as a result, what do they do? They avoid shepherding women and theological issues and instead outsource the duty again to the quote woman's pastor. And so uh, this reversal um, sits at the heart of my argument this reversal of roles uh, where we're seeing this kind of shift, again, even in the church, because the church is influenced by feminism more than we think. Um, now, like Christ the church, husbands are be, to be their wives, pr- their primary and earthly spiritual shepherd. And according to scripture, husbands have two responsibilities regarding the theological development of their wives. So first, they are to model Christ by lovingly sanctifying them and cleansing their wives by the washing of water by the word. That's Ephesians 5, 27. Second, because women are to learn from other men, their pastors, uh, in and in subjection. Uh, again, you're gonna see that in 1 Timothy uh, 2, 11 to 12. A wife's husband is solely responsible for clarifying and interpreting biblical and theological questions that arise from his wife. And that's in 1 Corinthians 14, 35. So the same is true with children, right? Children are to come to their dad to ask questions about God. Uh, And it's because dad is responsible as the primary shepherd of his children, Ephesians 6, 4, Proverbs 4, 1 through 4, uh, Joshua 4, uh, 21 through 24. So when a woman seeks to theologically shepherd my wife or my daughter uh, or my kids in a particular way, Uh, the females whom I'm responsible for before the Lord, I'm very concerned. And that's essentially what I'm trying to kind of maybe uh, whistleblow. I'm like, hey, men, wake up. Stop outsourcing the theological shepherding of your wife to all of these women teachers. No, it's your job to be the primary shepherd to be overseeing whatever is coming into her heart and mind because you're responsible for her before the Lord. Now, this concern 
also extends to pastors, right? Pastors are also uniquely accountable to Christ for female congregants, their spiritual their spiritual development and their spiritual state, their theological beliefs in a way that women are not. Uh, Acts 20, 28 tells pastors, quote, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, end quote. Now, this degree of responsibility uh, is further expressed in a variety of passages of scriptures, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, 1 Timothy 4, 16, and Titus 1, 9. Now, for example, in a biblical congregation, uh, a member, male or female, they're going to commit themselves to that particular church's statement of faith and theological convictions. This is very common. In many churches, they actually take membership vows to stay to that uh, statement of faith. And so when a woman moves into theological positions, you know, think about Calvinism, paedobaptism, open theism, patriarchy, uh, post-millennialism, Molinism, theonomy, whatever, right? When a woman moves into one of these positions without the awareness or support of her husband uh, and her pastor, she puts herself in a precarious position. She pits her conscience and newfound convictions on this particular theological matter against her husband's spiritual authority in their marriage and her pastor's spiritual authority in her church. And the husband has to either follow his wife into this new doctrine, which is, again, the opposite, not ideal order for theological development at home, or he has to shepherd her back to orthodoxy uh, into the position that he believes is sound and that allows them to maintain oneness in their marriage. And as for the pastor, depending on the circumstances, he might need to revoke a woman's membership from the church if she adopts one of these other positions. And like her husband, he might need to shepherd her back to orthodoxy. Now, this is, again, the fundamental issue that I am having with women teaching other women theology is that by doing so, these women assume a spiritual authority that does not rightfully belong to them. They take on the role of guiding the wives, daughters, and parishioners of husbands, fathers, and pastors who alone bear the responsibility for their spiritual and moral well-being. That is the core. That is the core of what I'm talking about. Have you heard about the recent discussions regarding head coverings for women in the church? There's been an increase in articles, podcasts, sermons, and videos on this topic, reviving a conversation about this historic Christian practice. However, Christians seem to be divided on their stance. Now, my wife has been wearing a head covering during worship for over 10 years now. That is to say that we are not new to this discussion. And for that reason, I thought it was important for me to write a short and clear book on the topic for Christians to understand everything they need to know to make an informed decision about this doctrine. The book is called A Cover for Glory, A Biblical Defense for Head Coverings. And you can get a copy on Amazon, or if you'd like to see more profit go to our ministry, you can always go to relearn.org forward slash glory. Again, that's relearn.org forward slash glory. A similar dilemma can be illustrated in the relationship between parents and their children. Parents are responsible for their children in a way that other adults are not. Uh, If there was a group of adults that were interested in parenting your child in ways that only you should be parenting your child, uh, I think about like the public school system, for example, is maybe one of those. Uh, you would be right to be concerned about those adults that are interested in parenting your child in only ways that you should be parenting your child. 
Uh, you should be even more concerned if your children begin to prefer to be parented by those other adults rather than being parented by you. Um, and in a sense, that's really kind of a parallel illustration to the issue at hand. Uh, just as parents are uniquely called and equipped to care and guide for their own children, uh, fathers, husbands, and pastors are uniquely called and equipped to care for the spiritual development of their wives and their children. So deviating from this biblical structure not only raises concerns about the distortion of spiritual authority, but also highlights the potential consequences that arise when individuals seek uh, guidance from sources that are outside of their God-ordained channels. Um, okay, so women teaching theology in church history. Um, I want to talk about this for a second. One of the key reasons I hold so firmly to my position is the lack of historical evidence showing women teaching theology to other women. Um, now, again, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but I'm, when I'm talking about teaching theology, I'm not talking about like two women sitting in a next to a, a fire in the winter over tea talking about, you know, the doctrines of grace. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the giant movement of women that are trying to have theological conferences and workshops and, and Bible studies and expositional work that are inviting hundreds of women to have theological development under their care and these women that are growing and more interested and in preferring to be theologically shepherded from other women rather than their husbands and rather than their pastors. They like to be under the woman's, quote, pastor. I'm talking about just, again, this movement at large here. And so please catch my drift when I'm communicating about this issue. Uh, now, uh, when examining the accounts of influential women throughout scripture, in church history, but I'm going to say biblical history because I'm talking about the New Testament. Um, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Priscilla, Junia, Mary Magdalene. There's no biblical record of these women engaging in theological instruction to other women. Now, Priscilla and her husband Aquila are mentioned in Acts 18, 24 to 26 as offering clarification of the gospel to Apollos uh, or Mary is Mary Magdalene is telling the disciples about the resurrected Christ in John uh, 20, one through 18. But that's a stretch to cite those specific instances in scripture as supportive evidence for women's theological ministries. Uh, instead, it, it demonstrates a specific instance of providing uh, guidance or conveying information to an individual rather than serving as an endorsement for widespread women's theological teaching ministry. So there's a difference between what we see, again, descriptively versus uh, prescriptive uh, instruction for women in the New Testament. Now, when we're exploring, you know, notable women in later centuries, uh, such as Perpetua or Felicity, uh, these women were martyred for their faith in the third century. But again, there's no indication of them functioning as theological teachers. Um, Cassia, a renowned ninth century uh, hymn writer, is recognized for her musical contributions, but Again, not for her theological instruction. Again, I know there's some overlap there. Argula von Grumbach, I believe is how you say her name, the first Protestant woman. Uh, she was a journalist in the 16th century focused on promoting and defending uh, Reformation figures like uh, Martin Luther, uh, Philip Melanchthon. But she did not, again, have a ministry focusing on theological instruction for other women. 
we have remarkable women like Anne Boleyn, uh, Queen of England. She played a significant role in advancing the Protestant Reformation. Uh, figures like Elizabeth Melville, Susanna Wesley. Um, they contributed through their poetry, their personal piety. Uh, th there was, again, no evidence of them engaging in formal ministries teaching women theology. Instead, what we see in church history is we witness godly women renowned for their reverence, commitment to mercy ministries, which you know, carry for the poor, uh, dealing with social issues, services to their local church. Um, they, they're, they're known for loving their families well and passing on practical skills and wisdom and, and lessons to future generations. Uh, these women were women that are exemplifying uh, virtues that were integral to their, their faith, but there's a noticeable absence of documented instances of women teaching theology to other women. In fact, uh, before the 20th century, the concept of a local evangelical church commissioning a woman to teach theology or walk the feminine portion of the congregation through an ex exposition of a particular Bible study was utterly non-existent. You will not find it. I tried to find it. I tried to find anything. I spent two and a half hours, and I, I'm a researcher, meaning that I, I actually, I spent many years researching. I know how to research effectively, and I couldn't find any instances of a parallel nature to what we have today in the church. It just doesn't exist. Now, if you find something, send it to me, but I could not find anything, meaning that at least at large, vastly, there is not a movement in church history of women teaching theology to other women. No, this is the domain of men. It doesn't, again, were there women having theological discussions and making you know, contributions to their church and some other uh, facet. Absolutely. Women, they're still having theological discourse with one another, but there's not this, again, theological shepherding movement of women teaching women other theology. They would teach other women the curriculum of Titus 2, which is to love their husbands and love their children and to uh, talking about homemaking and talking about what is good for a woman. And uh, yes, again, those things overlap with theology, but the the historical witness of the church is out of alignment with what we have today. And we are living in third wave feminism. So we, we do have to realize that, hey, we are actually living in a unique time and uh, we, we are doing things that the church never did. And we should really think about that. And so considering this historical context, it's crucial to acknowledge that either every generation of the Christian church has failed and improperly restrained women from participating in theological teaching ministries, or uh, that our generation has been so influenced by the feminist movement that we have permitted women to take up roles of theological shepherding that are out of alignment with scripture. And so again, ultimately, I, I agree that women have played vital roles within the church, uh, you know, caring even for children and, and you know, catechizing their own children. Uh, but again, historically, their impact has been more focused on practical aspects, compassionate service, nurturing the faith of other women and children uh, through, again, more of that one-on-one um, -on -one discipleship uh, conversations and pointing them back 
to the God-ordained channels of authority and spiritual responsibility for them. And so when a woman comes to you and she has these questions about theology and you're having discourse around some of these topics and what you want to do as a woman, you want to point them back, say, hey, you know, this is a great conversation, but you really do need to, um, before, before you adopt this position, you should, really should talk to your husband about this. You really should ask your husband some of these questions. You know, I've asked my husband some of these questions. These are the questions and statements you should be making, or if they don't have a husband, then pointing them back to their pastor. If they, they're not married, you know, and young, you point them to their father. You don't want to take up that responsibility of, of ha- shepherding a woman into a theological position uh, when you, you're not responsible for her soul before God, like her father or her husband or her um, or her pastor is. And so again, just watching those territories there. Now, defining theology. Uh, we live in a time when people want to uh, homogenize and equalize everything. And they say that men and women are the same, that adults and children are essentially the same. I and mean, we're seeing this with, oh, your, chi- your child can totally choose their gender, right? Because they're basically an adult, right? I mean, they can, they can make those decisions, right? Uh, you know, there's also this movement in the church of, of pastors and parishioners are the same. And, and it's an unfortunate fallacy. Uh, Dr. Anthony Wood, who is uh, one of the critics of this position, uh, starting in a video that he did at uh, time code 30 uh, minutes and 25 seconds, um, he, he falls prey to this fallacy. He says this quote, uh, and it sounds good when you hear it. It says, you know, all theology is, is God logic. We're all theologians and God wants us to know who he is. And that's theology. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't help other people grow in theology. End quote. Now, if you've listened to these episodes, you know that I've never talked about the idea of not letting up women learn theology. We must have women learn theology. I'm talking about how women are theologically shepherded. Is it through women ministries uh, of women teaching them theology, or is it actually through their pastor or through their husband or through their father that's taking them and who's, who is responsible for their beliefs about God, their morality before God? Um, and so, you know, he makes this statement and sure, in a sense, we're all theologians, right? You can't, it's hard, it's hard to you go, I disagree with that. No, it's sure, in a sense, yeah, we're all theologians. But let's just apply this way of thinking to some other spheres. I mean, we're all scientists, right? Because I mean, we do, we do some science, right? I mean, every day we do some sort of science, right? So we're all scientists, right? We're all doctors. I mean, I mean, I, I certainly have diagnosed my kids with certain things and, and treated them with different supplements and I mean, so essentially, essentially, I'm a doctor, right? I mean, we're all doctors, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, we're all, you know, I, I've made things, you know, and and we, you know, we've we've made things in our backyard and we built things over the years. I mean, we're all engineers, right? We're all engineers, right? No, uh, it, you know, again, in a sense, we're all those things. Uh, but what Anthony Wood is attempting to standardize and neutralize this term, in my opinion, to support his his bias and his view. And so the truth is that we're not all theologians. In the context of this conversation, like what I'm talking about, when we're using the term theologian here, we're talking about shepherds, we're talking about pastoral, we're talking, okay, we're, we're not actually all theologians in that sense. And uh, 
Webster Dictionary defines a theologian as, quote, someone who is an expert in theology. Now, I love, I know we live in a generation that thinks they're an expert in everything, you know, because they read, you know, four articles on the internet, all of a sudden the expert. But, um, you know, ChatGPT, actually, I asked, I asked ChatGPT to define a theologian and it said, quote, a scholar or an expert in the field of theology who engages in critical analysis, interpretation, and reflection on religious texts, traditions, and philosophical concepts, end quote. Okay, again, this is certainly not the description of every Christian. When I say, you know, or when Anthony Wood says, we're all theologians, like that, that's, that's not really true. Yeah, we're all theologians in a sense, but we're not all scholars. We're not all those individuals who have studied the original languages in Hebrew and Greek and understand systematic theology and have spent a significant amount of time in their life because they're called by God to know these things, to, to be able to divide the truth from error, uh, to, to write and research and study and have discourse. We're not all the, that. We're, we're not all theologians at that degree. And many pastors actually don't even call themselves theologians because to be a theologian uh, is a matter of specialization. I mean, it really is when I'm not a scholar. Uh, I might be considered maybe a pastor theologian where I'm more of a general, pastors are essentially generalists. We need to know a lot or we, we need to know a little about a lot. Uh, scholars and theologians in the more formal definition are specialists, right? They need to know a lot um, about a little. And so so we're, we're very different in that term. And so when you go to seminary and, you know, just because you're in seminary doesn't mean you would ever call yourself a theologian. Uh, if you even get like a doctorate of ministry, you're not necessarily considered really like a theologian or a scholar. You would go for like a PhD program if you were a scholar. And so there's there's differences there. And, and I think the average Christian doesn't understand this, but even our Christian publishing industry understands uh, what I think, again, you know, Anthony Wood misses here is if you look at Amazon, there are over 50 categories of Christian literature. And one of them is theology. Out of the 50 categories of Christian books, only one of those categories is theology, right? So the subdirectory of just that theological section includes angelology, demonology, anthropology, apologetics, Christology, ecclesiology, eschatology, ethics, history, liberation, uh, mariology, uh, pneumatology, soteriology, and systematics. In other words, in a sense, again, we're, in a sense, we're all theologians, kind of. But in the context of this discussion, what I'm talking about around theological shepherds, people who are qualified, according to scripture, designed in their very being to communicate the truths of God because they're responsible for the development and uh, nurturing of souls. Those theologians, um, you know, we're, we're not all those people. We're not all those people. Doug Wilson, I would say, is a theologian. John MacArthur is a theologian. You know, John Piper is a theologian. Paul Washer is a, is a theologian. You know, um, Tim Keller, you know, who's actually in the middle of passing away as we're recording this, uh, this episode here, is a theologian. Um, we're, we're not the same as those individuals, you know, and, and Lord willing, in some time as I continue to study 
maybe I'll be in those same categories. But but I, I would even be very slow to call myself a theologian. And so the type of theologian I'm talking about is these rich, deeply trained individuals that are able to correctly and faithfully teach the word of God. And so we're not all the same. Uh, in both podcasts, I want to talk about categories of theology real quick. I, I emphasized the importance of breaking down the concept of the word theology into practical categories that can relate to everyday life. And so this approach aims to provide women with a clearer understanding of the limits within which their ministries to other women can operate. And so I, I understand that the Bible does not give us explicit categories of theology, but all theology in a sense kind of overlaps. When you talk about one thing about God, you essentially talk about everything. And so there, there is essentially, there is overlap there. But we do see this categorization in our Christian life. So there are categories of theology. Let, let me give you an example. Like the type of theology that you learn at seminary is different than the type of theology that you learn on Sunday in the pulpit. Uh, for people that don't go to seminary, they might think that maybe it's the same. It's not. And the stuff that you learn at seminary, uh, I, I've been in seminary for five years, uh, and seminary is is deep. There's a glossary of terms that re- you're required to even have a level of clarity on the vernacular before you can even enter into the conversations at that level. And so there's a, there's a distinct difference between that type of theology and the, the, the more practical expositional gospel focused devotional style theology that you would hear on Sunday. Um, the type of theology required to make a good sourdough is distinct from the theology required to teach your five-year-old to stop lying. Um, so what I want to do is I want to present a couple categories just again, as general markers, knowing that every person's situation again is going to be unique and that these categories will require individual discernment from you. But for this discussion, women will encounter three general categories of theology. And you need to figure out how you can distinguish these because again, we're not all theologians, meaning that we're not all the same. And then if we go to theology, all theology is not the same. It's not. I know we like to just make everything the same in this generation, but all theology is not the same. And so three categories. Number first category, biblical womanhood. And this is focusing on issues surrounding the practical development of Christian women. So there's a whole bunch of theology that's in that area. And I know you want to just think that it's all the same. It's not the same. Okay. This is throughout church history. This is the general zone that that women generally were known for is focusing on the issues surrounding the practical development of Christian women and motherhood and wifehood and and uh, homemaking and all the things that come along with that and modesty and, and reverence and prudence and, you know, all of it. Okay. The second category is devotional theology. And this is focusing on the core tenets of the gospel and the general orthodox truths of the Christian faith. And so this is the type of theology that you generally hear on Sunday. This is the type of theology that you would see in all the historic statements of faith or the catechisms. Um, the catechisms to us seem like academic theology because we're so theologically illiterate and biblically illiterate that we are like overwhelmed by these fundamentals of the faith. Like 
basic Christianity to someone in the 1700s was is like extreme Christianity to someone today. I remember Paul Washer actually said that he read a book on philosophy that was from like, I think the 1700s. And he said it was the most intense, deep, rich book on philosophy that he had ever seen. And then he found out that it was for junior high students in the 1700s. That's, that's kind of what's going on with us today is that devotional theology, when you're catechizing your kids, you're like, wow, this is robust stuff. Well, honestly, it's not. It's actually like basic Christianity. We're just so biblically and theologically literate, illiterate today that it seems extreme. Okay, the third category is academic theology. And this is really the territory that a lot of women I've been seeing are trying to enter. And this is focusing on scholastic doctrines that often lead to denominational divisions and are generally studied by men called the pastoral ministry. Now, this is like, um, when, you, when you, academic theology does deal with things that divide denominations, you're either going to be a Baptist or you're going to be a Presbyterian, or maybe you're going to be a Lutheran or you're going to be an Anglican if you view it this way. And so academic theology is, is, it can be very divisive within orthodoxy. Um, so, uh, you know, we can be unified without being uniform. You know, we can be unified on the gospel, but these secondary issues, you know, pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism and pedo-communion versus credo-communion and premillennialism versus dispensationalism and amillennialism versus postmillennialism and theonomy, you know, versus, you know, uh, your views on the Trinity, whatever it is. These are very important categories and they're upstream in a sense that they, they can really divide, uh, they can divide people into different churches. And so again, not all categories of theology are the same. So we, we notice that there's not, we're not all theologians in the same way. We're categories of theology are not all the same. And now I want to talk about categories of teaching. Okay, to assert that all forms of teaching are equal would also be unwise. They're not all the same. The act of theological instruction occurs across a spectrum of formats, ranging from casual conversations among Christian friends to structured lectures in a four-year rigorous PhD program at a seminary. And so scripture even recognizes the distinction between formal teaching and ordinary conversation. It says in James 3.1, quote, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, end quote. This passage indicates that God has appointed certain teachers certain individuals who are brothers, Adelphos, it's probably Adelphoi, I guess, in the, in the plural, brothers, this is masculine men. This is men, okay? Uh, some translations are gonna wanna change that to brethren so that they can make it, you know, egalitarian. Oh, they're talking to the church. It's not just men and judges men, it's all men and women. No, in the Greek, it's talking about men. And, Paul's not writing scriptures in the first century letters to women. No, that would just be so out of step with the historical cultural reality of that day. No, he's writing these letters to men. And he knows that the men are going to disseminate this information to their wives and to their children. And so, uh, 
again, this passage indicates that God has appointed certain teachers, men within the church to build up the body. And these men will be held to a higher level of accountability for the weightiness of their role and responsibility to teach. Again, there are different classes of teaching. You can have a great conversation and teach somebody something over a cup of coffee. Um, but that is very different than the taking up the mantle of theologically shepherding an individual to uh, a particular doctrine that might cause division in their home or church or cause them to move churches. Or... So again, all scripture um, also encourages believers to talk about Christ. So we're all to talk about Christ, right? Proclaim Christ, defend Christ in our everyday lives. We need to do this. this is Matthew 28, 19 through 20, 1 Peter 3, 15, Colossians 4, 5 through 6, Psalm 105, 1. Um, recognizing the difference between formal and informal modes of teaching is helpful as it provides Christians with boundaries that determine what is appropriate according to their being, according to their calling, according to their role within the body of Christ. And so I've categorized, just again, trying to be helpful here, uh, two types of teaching and outlined them with several characteristics that uh, I can help distinguish them for you here in a second. So we have, we're not all theologians in the same way. We're not all the same. Theology is not all the same. We have biblical womanhood. We have academic, the, our devotional theology and academic theology. And then we have different types of teaching. We have um, informal teaching and we have formal teaching. Informal teaching is non-pastoral, non-authoritative, non-systematic, but it's informative. You know, it's, it's casual conversation. I mean, th these are conversations, group discussions, social media discourse. Maybe you're listening to an interview or testimonies or maybe some worship music or biographies. And many Christian books actually fall into this category of informal. Uh, they're not having authority over your life. It's not necessarily pastoral. Uh, it's not maybe systematic theology. It's informative though. And, and you can actually take that information to your spiritual head and shepherd and and as a woman and go, hey, what do you, what do you think about this? Let's have a discussion around this. What, what are your thoughts? Can you help guide me in these directions? Can you counsel me? pastor or husband or father. Um, and then you have formal teaching and formal teaching comes with responsibility. Uh, formal teaching is pastoral. It's authoritative. It's, it's systematic. Again, it's responsible. And this is pulpit preaching. This is Bible study. This is Sunday schools. This is conference lectures. This is, you know, formal classes and courses and workshops, and training programs and seminary and, and mentorships that you have like, a, again, like a, uh, I don't know, you can have informal and formal mentors, but in, you can have some authority in a mentorship. But you know, academic publications, you know, you know, Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, um, you know, th these are, you know, some of these, these uh, formal things. And again, women need to be learning in this category. I'm not saying that women can't learn from formal teaching. They certainly should be. Um, should They should be reading some of these academic publications. They should be taking... Um, you know, some of these classes and courses and conference lectures and things like that. Those are great. They just should be by men. They should be by men. They should be by men that their husbands and their pastors and their fathers have approved and have uh, are not going to create conflicts within their own marriage and authority structures. And so in our current generation, 
we must, again, constantly fight against this inclination to blur boundaries and treat everything as if it's equal. Uh, As we know, establishing boundaries will often be viewed as legalistic. It'll be viewed as discriminatory. It's not. Okay, we we have to be willing to confine ourselves to our God-given beings, roles, work, and responsibilities. We have to. Confine yourself to that territory. That's the mess of this generation is that we have just treated ourselves if we're all the same. And if we're all the same, we can just basically just keep treating each other as if there's no distinctions or differences between us. And that's the mess that we're in. And so this generation would benefit from a clearer understanding of these limitations and helping people have boundaries and stay within their respected stations. Um, and, and women, you know this. I mean, imagine if you tried to go, you restrain yourself from getting in the pulpit on Sunday and preaching. There's a clear boundary there. I'm just saying that there's other boundaries here. There's, there's categories of teaching and what you should be you know, communicating. There's, there's types of teaching. There's types of theology. There's, and so I'm trying to give you guys helpful markers of boundaries for your journey. Now, I'm going to close here. The ultimate solution to this whole mess is while this article or this podcast, again, my my intention has been to offer clarity and practicality in restoring biblical boundaries uh, for theological shepherding for both men and women, it's not by itself a comprehensive or lasting solution. This article, this podcast, this is just intended to start a conversation within the church to reform back to the biblical channels of authority within the home, within the church, within society, around men and women, specifically around theological instruction and education. Now, the ultimate remedy lies in cultivating a generation of biblical, godly, loving, and willing men who will assume spiritual responsibility for the women under their care. So ladies, Raise up some godly little boys. Men, please raise up some godly men. Walk in your biblical role. So many women are walking to other women because of necessity, because their stinking husband or father or pastor isn't providing them a sufficient amount of theological guidance. And so when men won't lead, women will turn other places. Now, again, we both have roles to play, right? So women need to confine themselves and stop doing that. And men need to step up. And so fathers, pastors, they must earnestly strive to raise up men who are eager and ready to shepherd, qualified, capable. And it's going to require equipping them with the necessary knowledge and skills to lead their wives and children in the study of God's word. It demands fostering a continuous hunger for theological growth and maturity. We need to be doing this in men at our churches. And to achieve this, we have to emphasize the importance of intentional discipleship among men, uh, providing resources and support for men to develop their spiritual confidence and authority. Uh, In addition, uh, we should encourage and facilitate opportunities for men to engage in theological education and discourse and mentoring and accountability. If we would just spend so much, it's so frustrating. Like I was reading a stat that was like, I don't know, 7% of the family comes to 
Christ if the kids come to Christ first. And it was like 20% of the family comes to Christ if the mom comes to Christ first. And then it was like 94% of the families come to Christ if dad comes first. And if that's true, which I've seen several studies that prove that to be true, why the heck are we spending so much money on children's ministries? Right? Because if we're, if we're investing thousands, millions of dollars in children's ministries at our church, yet men's ministries and, and equipping men is actually the way that we're seeing more people come to Christ because if dad comes to Christ, we have a covenantal reality there of proclamation and authority and spiritual authority. It just doesn't, just doesn't make sense. We need to be investing into more men's ministries and just masculine churches. Just get rid of this effeminate stuff that's at the church. Start attracting more godly, strong men. And so when we do this, uh, we focus on developing strong male leaders within the church. We can create an environment where the desire of women to seek other women for theological guidance can be reduced and where they can flourish under the loving guidance and protection of their fathers and their husbands and their pastors. And again, this approach aligns with the biblical principles and promotes the biblical order of authority and care within the family and the church. That is essentially what we're trying to do. And so that's the end of the article. You can read it. It's titled on relearn.org, resolving the question, what is a woman's role in theological education? It's not a perfect article. Neither is this podcast. It's really my, my you know, first attempt to open up a discussion to the church and raise a red flag about what we're seeing about how much feminism has influenced the church and how do we get back to raising up godly men to shepherd, theologically shepherd their wives and daughters and feminine or female parishioners um, so that women aren't turning to other women for their theological development. Um, and again, using those phrases, academic theology versus devotional theology, please listen to all the episodes, episode one, episode two, episode three, if you want ultimate clarity. And again, it's not a perfect defense. It's just a conversation that's starting. And I think it's been fruitful and I hope it's helpful for your journey uh, as a Christian, understanding your biblical roles uh, that God has designed for men and women. So if this episode has been helpful for you and you found our podcast to be a blessing to you in any capacity, we'd love it if you left a review. You can leave a review. You don't even need to uh, write anything. You can just tap the stars. Uh, but if you do leave a review, I will read it. They are very encouraging to me. Uh, on that note, thank you for listening to this episode of Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. I'll see you guys next time. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, would you consider leaving a review? You don't need to write anything. Just tap the stars in your podcast app. But if you would write a review, we will read it. Real Christianity is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, and of course, at relearn.org. You can also follow along on social media. Just search for relearn.org or Dale Partridge on just about every social media platform. Lastly, if you feel led to support our ministry financially, 
As we fight to bring the church back to the Bible, you can always do that at relearn.org forward slash donate. 